spent so much time assuming and planning for the worst in terms of image blooming, uh, image intensifier shutdown due to bright light sources. But the actual effects of the fire, was they were remarkable in terms of spatial orientation. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 89 of the Rotary Wing Show, coming to you from Redcliffe, just north of Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. We are a long way from the the big helicopter hubs around the world where all the action is, but the goal of this podcast is to help bring the helicopter industry that little bit closer together and to dive into the topics that many of us just wouldn't get a chance to any other way. Time keeps ticking on, and one of the topics way back in episode 65 that we covered was night helicopter firefighting. At the time in mid-2018, we had just had the first approvals here in Australia for night aerial firefighting and some trials that were carried out in Victoria. If you've been listening since then, and that far back, you might remember one of my early Army flight instructors, Richard Butterworth, was on the talk about Kestrel Aviation's part in the trials and how they had gone about standing up a night vision capability to be able to carry the fight into the night on the fire grounds. Rich is the head of training operations in the senior night vision imaging systems or the Envis pilot at Kestrel Aviation, who are based themselves down at Mangalore in Victoria. For international listeners, if you picture mainland Australia, that's down towards the southeast corner. Rich has had a, a lead role right from the, the beginning, getting the, the night firefighting capability going, which was a, a first here in Australia, even though it's been done overseas. Before this, he's had a career flying in the military and in EMS. A lot has happened for the crews and the capability in the last two years, so it's a good time to check in with where things are up to. There's probably no one else in Australia, at least, who has more experience with this, so you're basically getting the information straight from the source. A lot of the background info is in episode 65, if you go back and check that out. But Rich covers off again the advantages and the challenges of night firefighting to bring us back up to speed. Rich, I looked at the the date and it's almost two years smack on since we last spoke. And at that stage, you guys were doing the the NVG or the the night firefighting trials. And you hadn't yet actually put it in like actual practice yet. It was still the trials and, and the finish of the approval process. We've now got two fire seasons under your belt. And the, the most previous one was a, a pretty crazy fire season. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's start off with, with what you've been doing for the last two years. Yeah, thanks, Vic. And thanks again for the opportunity. And to bring us back up to speed, uh, to cover that ground sort of where we left off in the previous interview, the last time we spoke... From a domestic perspective, um, Kestrel had attained approval to conduct night aerial firefighting. So in, in broad terms and, and demonstrated proof of concept, I mean, we could safely pick up water from an open water source and accurately drop that water on a designated target. Now, internationally, this was already in practice through 
Uh, although activities in the Northern Hemisphere were confined to, to ground fill operations in order to mitigate risk. So that was the real point of difference. And that risk being the real and, to some extent, uh, perceived risk of hover fill operations. And that's chiefly the difficulty identifying hazards and also the loss of spatial orientation with prolonged hovering over and near water. So, Rich, do you want to just break that down a little bit more then? So what you're saying is your initial trials and what they're doing overseas is they would come into a fixed point, land on the ground, and then be topped up with a, a hose, essentially, rather than going for a natural refill. Correct. So our initial trials did include hover fill because that was always the ability to uh, it, was a, it was a key objective for Australian agencies to conduct hover fill because of our displaced resources and they had a strategic need for flexibility. That was really, really a focal point and, again, the point of difference because ground, what ground fill does is it mitigates risk of hovering over an open water source at night and particularly identifying obstacles. So, and also there's an element of risk mitigation in terms of fatigue because it allows you to switch off. So that was, a, as I've said, a key objective uh, for Australian agencies was to pursue uh, a hover fill capability. The other point that I remember from that discussion we had last time was, again, I was picturing this on night vision goggles, but you're kind of reminded us that, you know, there's no tactical scenario here. So when you're coming over the hover fill, you've got the searchlight on downstairs, so you've got all those sort of peripheral cues as well. And that was just a, a difference that I hadn't sort of thought about initially. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely, Mick. And, and- you're getting what surprised me uh, initially was the ability to hold high over the water source was, was actually a, quite a, a simple task because of the peripheral and all the spill of white light because we're carrying a lot of white light. And then so hovering, you know, hovering our, holding the hover position uh, was not, actually not that difficult. The challenges were essentially was all of the obscurance, the dust, the water spray and how you dealt with those. That was, that's really where the challenges lay and they can all be mitigated by uh, additional equipment and procedures. The other, I guess not technically, but just to clarify for people, so we're talking about belly tanks here and not uh, buckets. I did see a video of someone in the US doing night bucket training, just like it's an eight-month-old video on YouTube. But everything we're doing here is, is belly tanks. It is belly tanks. CASA released a temporary management instruction two and a half years ago and one of their requirements was belly tank only. Uh, and that's purely risk mitigation. So you're reducing the amount of uh, equipment that's hanging below the skids or the wheels. Okay, yep. The trials moved into natural water source collection and, and that happened since we last spoke? They did. So like in the, con- the context of the domestic program, which was coordinated, it was a national coordinated activity by NASTI and then through the Victorian government. I mean, we'd essentially achieved what I would term an initial operational capability. But at the it had 10 hours, 60 drops, and as you mentioned, we were at the start point of a, a, a quite a lengthy development continuum. And, you know, that's just a fancy word for a roadmap. We needed to figure out where we, you know, where we are, where we wanted to be, and how do we get there. One of the interesting things that we had to do, first of all, we had to define what was the final capability. What was it the agencies wanted us to be able to do? And interestingly, this was still yet to be specifically laid out, apart from fairly obvious and broad objectives being to extend the fight into the night and protect areas of high risk. The problem we faced, though, on the commercial side is we needed to really define that capability in terms of key objectives so that we could fill that roadmap with the gaps. What couldn't we do? The primary objective, as you 
as defined by us on the commercial side was we needed to try and emulate day capability. And they were, we needed to hit hard and hit early, otherwise known as initial attack. We needed to do life and asset protection. And we needed to seamlessly integrate into the ground and the day fight. And so once we knew this goal, these goals, we could start to plan the road end. And that developed from an agency point of view into what was called the night fire suppression operation, which was again coordinated and contracted by Emergency Management Victoria. I mean, the idea here was it was about to not necessarily focus not on effect, effectiveness. This was all about can we, can we actually do this operation safely? So we were all about in the first year or the first summer establishing the limiting conditions, weather, terrain variation, types of fire. We needed to get out and experience it all. Can we accurately and repeatedly hit assigned targets? And this is what essentially determines what targets best suited to the capability. The hover and the ground fill, we needed a transferable and repeatable capability. And can we safely conduct reconnaissance at times at night, meaning can we conduct an initial attack? And on top of that, we had to look at all the normal things that we do by day in support, such as tasking, refueling, support, accommodation. So all of these little smaller elements required that thorough methodical test and evaluation over a prolonged period, which is what occurred over the last two years. And typically, you know, when I, when I first look at things, and for, for heaps of us who are air crew, we focus on the on the flying side, and think that's like the crux of it. But I was watching this, the uh, you know, like a mini documentary that Victorian Emergency Management had done, and it kind of clicked for me that it's not, as you're saying, like it's it's a lot more than just physically getting the aircraft, picking up the water, and going somewhere and dropping it off. It's the logistics side. These trials had 50 to 100 ground crew out there of a, of a night that you had to sort of coordinate with because it's, it's not just dropping the water from the helicopter, it's, it's how they then coordinate with you guys too. So, again, I think first time around I didn't kind of clue to how big a tail there was beyond just the, the helicopter ops. Oh, and uh, that's right. And, but that was part of the design of the night fire suppression operation in the, in the season of 2018-19, which was essentially the first phase. Because the idea from EMB was that it would be a turnkey capability. Because, and, and that was partly, it was a pretty smart PR exercise. We didn't want to interrupt the apple cart with the shiny new toy. We didn't want to roll into a day operation and completely disrupt it. We just wanted to go in there, do our thing, gather our information and get out. So that was the key. That summer, I mean, it had a lot of elements to it. You touched on not just the logistic tail, but so much of what we're trying to do because it's new, particularly in Australia, I'm not saying it's new overseas, apart from the hover fill in Australia, it, it was about the perception management, gaining, regu- you know, gaining regulatory approval because of these approvals didn't exist. Some of them needed exemptions. And all, a lot of this took a, a lot of time in terms of you know, risk assessments, safety cases and so forth. That first full summer was preceded you know, by a recruitment phase to start with and an intensive training program, as you can imagine, because the makeup of the flight crew makes for a really interesting and somewhat contentious debate. It's a classic chicken and egg. If you talk to one side, and the only way to control risk is to take high-time night vision pilots and transition them to the fire ground. Well, vice versa, if to flip that argument, you see high-time fire pilots who are intimate with the hazards of the fire ground and the task, and then they're trained to operate at night. 
both of those are, are backed by sound reasoning. Step off from an unknown into a known, but which is the bigger leap, which sparks the debate? So which way, yeah, Cass- which way did you guys attack it? Well, Cass's, the solution was embedded in Cass's own TMI. They, they basically said either meet a range of qualifications and experience prerequisites or provide a flight crew complement with an equivalent level of safety. So that was the key, a combination representing both sides operating as a single crew. That was always going to be our goal initially, high time night with some fire and high time fire with some night, both with type, um, type experience. And during the early stages, uh, both had to have an IPC as man- mandated by on instrument uh, rating. Although importantly, and this is really critical, is that that temporary management instruction didn't cover hoverfill. Which, one is, which remained one of the big ticket unknowns. So in order to gain an exemption against regulation, we, we had to keep initially keep the night experience high across the board. The problem with that is I understood why we had to do it, but it wasn't indicative of future viability. We needed to be mindful that this was early and we hadn't hit the start. I'm always focused on the end game uh, and how this would translate in a mature industry. So that first season, so we're talking December 2018, January 2019, what sort of rate of, rate of effort were you guys doing? Was it, a, was it still like a trial rate of effort or was it you were actually being tasked nightly to go out on, on fires? Quite for a few weeks and then we had the first job, which actually created Australian history and that was the first contracted night firebombing activity, uh, which was down in uh, Latrobe Valley at a place called Rosedale in January of 2019. And that successful activity, that set the platform for the summer. Uh, we, at Kestrel, uh, was involved in nine different firegrounds over 24 nights of deployment. And we were exposed, the entire capability was exposed to varying fire types, different sizes, integrated with different terrain from high DA, alpine terrain, heavy forest, and of course, what we were looking at too is the urban interface. And what it allowed us to learn, number one, was that we could pick up water safely from an open water source and deliver it where the agency wanted it. So put simply, the concept worked and the procedures held up. But all of the lessons learned from that first phase must be predicated with a critical element. As a key risk mitigation control, all of that night tasking in that first phase was preceded by a day reconnaissance prior to night operations commencing. So that's critical to understand when we start to talk about procedures were, you know, techniques, procedures held up, things were repeatable and so forth. So what did that look like on the, on the day itself? Would you go out at like 4.30 and then go back at, you know, 6.30 once it was dark? How did you sort of, you know... Yeah, well, remember, summer it's getting dark at 9 o'clock. So we had a fair window to be deployed anywhere in the state, which is not ideal, state of Victoria, in terms of, again, the the economics of the activity, but you've got the objective was to gain as much experience and data as we could. So we were online from 4pm and we could be activated at any time from then to anywhere in the state with enough time to get to the fire ground, conduct a day reconnaissance, land, eat, rebrief, and then go to work. So would you drop uh, water so, on that recon, or that was purely just a, a fly past? Uh, no, we would. If we if we completed the primary objective of the reconnaissance, we would then work in with the current day 
domestic uh, operation uh, and continue to drop until uh, fuel reserves or we um, or we you know had, meet, had met that time where we had to get back and uh, start to work through some of the administration to get us back out later in, in the night. Okay. Yep. So as I well as I said, the procedures worked, and the most revealing, well, I guess, the most relieving thing for me personally was that most of what we saw and experienced was in keeping with our expectations. As I've said many a time, I had a lot of confidence in what we were doing. Sure, there were some unknowns, but, but altogether the concepts were sound, the program was well thought out. What I was not prepared for was some of the positive aspects of what we were doing, uh, particularly in terms, of, in terms of the illumination of the fire ground. We'd spent so much time assuming and planning for the worst in terms of image blooming, uh, image intensifier shutdown due to bright light sources. But the actual effects of the fire was, they were remarkable in terms of spatial orientation. On dark nights, as a function of lunar illumination, I mean, you didn't want to leave the fire because that was when the hard work returned. Getting to and from the fire was where it was difficult. Once you were at the fire, uh, it was a joy to be there. The other big tick of relief was the hoverfill component over that summer. This was still largely an unknown, as I mentioned. However, the bulk of the summer was conducted using hoverfill, and all of the crews were increasingly comfortable with each activity. Most significantly, though, the summer proved that the operations to and from an open water source for hoverfill were in parallel with operations to and from a basic HLS as defined by regulation. And that is really important to understand in order to advance the capability and the subsequent removal of a day reconnaissance requirement because a precedent is already set in terms of current SAR, AMS and law enforcement operations under render. They're not doing a day reconnaissance before they're going to a trauma site at 2am. They're going straight to that site, they're conducting a reconnaissance and making a landing and a departure. So what we're doing is no different. A couple of questions there. Richard, so you guys are using a 412. When you're going out there over night time, is, is there anything else airborne or it's just you guys in, in the airspace? No, it's just at night, it's just us. So we'll have an air attack that's mandated by the agency as a risk mitigation element. Uh, and then there were two tactical aircraft. And again, you know, people have asked me, it, it sounds like, it's a, is it a higher risk operating at night? I, I take these words from, they're not mine, um, but I've, I've heard this mentioned before and it's exactly true. It's not. It's not increased risk, it's just different risk. Because one of the, the largest or the most significant risks we face in aerial firefighting is in a smoky, hot, a dynamic environment with eight to 10 other aircraft, you know, the risk of banging into another machine is significant. So when you're operating at night and you've pre-briefed and there's three of you and you've got lights on and everyone knows where everyone is, it's, it, it completely removes that element and it's actually very, very comfortable to operate. And apologies, I come from a pretty low experience level when it comes to the fire side of things, but working with the ground crews, does anything change at night in coordination with those guys? Only in terms of uh, the air attack will do most of the tactical communications with, the, um, with ground resources. So our job is solely to focus on hoverfill and suppression activity. So again, it makes our job so much easier by streamlining those communications through the air attack. And it was just verbally talking on. I know we spoke before in one of those earlier videos, there was a, 
an S76 over the top shooting a laser down, and you said that wasn't so effective once you actually got into the real things. You guys just been guided on by visual kind of yeah, correct. talk through? Yeah. A lot of our, our pre-season training worked on that, that human interaction from aircraft to aircraft. Uh, so a lot of the things we do are exactly the same by day in terms of target identification. Uh, so nothing really does change. Uh, as we spoke about, the laser, in theory, it, it, has, it, it holds up, but it's generally when the aircraft air attack might pick something a hot spot up with the FLIR that you're not quite detecting with, the, with night vision. Therefore, they can direct you onto that spot. But as I mentioned, those types of activities and, and fire suppression activities, such as heli mopping, they're not really the most uh, economic car to something uh, of this uh, capability. So as those objectives, as I talked about at the beginning of this interview, were initial attack, hit early, hit hard, life and asset, those types of tasks. So when you're talking about active flame, you don't really have a lot of difficulty uh, figuring out where to, where to put the suppression loads. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so does that basically wrap up that first season? Were you then sort of into a, a standby mode then for the next one? Or how did that sort of season end off? So to wrap up phase one or that first season, in terms of effectiveness, like, I'm not a, it wasn't a defined objective and I'm not a professional firefighter, but what I can say was we could hit targets as required. At times, we were able to build a tempo akin to day operations. And we were also, we validated the increasing effects of suppression over the course of the night, meaning as the night wore on and the temperature and the wind decreased, the relative humidity increased, the fire behaviour decreased markedly to the point where we watched these intense columns collapse, lose all of their energy, and that allowed us to really go to work. Something particularly important, an additional lesson learned that is for moving on in terms of development of capability, was the fact that we were operating solely under the night VFR and VMC. There was no approval to use available reduced minima. And, and this was by design, primarily because it ensured the capability was never exposed to the combined hazards, smoke, low cloud and terrain as a risk mitigator. However, that was particularly limiting in terms of operational availability. We, in order to move forward, we got that data and therefore moving forward uh, was going to you know, look to gain approval for reduced minima. The other significant milestone was the confirmation of flight crew qualifications and experience. I discussed a little earlier the makeup of the crew, which was night experience heavy, but Kestrel was able to submit an additional safety case for a high-time fire pilot with a minimal night experience to augment the team in the co-pilot role. And this objective was, was really simple because it was about industry viability. It was about growing from within, taking the right people who know the work, understand the client, and transition them into the night with an experienced night and fire captain. And this was a resounding success. The experience of that individual in fire behaviour and agency operations, it really optimised the situational awareness of the crew. And again, this was just more data, more evidence supporting our, our push towards maturity. So to answer your question around about way, the end of phase one, we took all the lessons learnt and we committed our, our review of the season analyze the final, the, the vision of the final operational capability. Again, 
identified the gap, what were we still missing? And these became those roadmap objectives for the next summer, which were simply optimise our weather minima, to gain approval for reduced flight planning weather minima, the limited removal of the day reconnaissance requirement to enable us to look at initial attacks and continue the reduction of crew qualification experience, particularly for the co-pilot side. And that real challenge in that approval process lay in the removal of that day reconnaissance. So I've already mentioned that there's a precedent within industry. However, this was still a large pill to swallow for the regulator and the fire agency. So in keeping with our phase methodical development program, we introduced cloud and illumination restrictions so we could optimise hazard identification and we gained approval to conduct limited initial attacks and that now set us up to enter phase two of the night fire suppression operation or black summer as they call it. Yeah, we'll talk about how big it is and it sort of faded pretty quickly because it wasn't that far after it that the coronavirus kind of took over the whole media cycle. But just before we leave that, Richard, talking about the night VFR and then some of the restrictions. Were you restricted in alternates at night for that first season? Because I know we'll talk about it shortly. Was that a consideration? You just there was areas you couldn't go because you couldn't hold an alternate. Oh, my word! First season was um, yeah. First season was completely different in terms of while we had some fairly large fires, they were essentially isolated, so we could plan and execute uh, in and around the limiting visibility. So that brings us into this summer. The night program was certainly a victim of the scale of the season, like many things. And compared to phase one or that first summer, it was relatively quiet. And that was a function of a number of factors. I mean, the first was the sheer scale of fire grounds relative to the size of the night capability. I mean, simply, was it was the risk worth the gain? The second follows a similar theme. Agency coordinators and local incident controllers are facing you know, immense challenges and the thought of introducing a, a development capability, because remember that's gotta remember that's where we were still we were still we weren't we hadn't reached maturity. So introducing that into a saturated and at times overwhelmed resource resource plan was just not palatable. And the third, you, you hit on it. The third was the weather and the planning conditions that were a direct consequence of fire grounds. The amount of lingering smoke that reduced visibility across large tracts of Victoria and New South Wales resulted in an inability to meet required visibility or alternate aerodromes. This was our introduction to widespread smoke. There was one, as an example, uh, we were deployed to the Ovens Valley in northeast Victoria in support of a containing a lightning strike on Mount Buffalo. And following the first night sortie at about 10pm, we watched the smoke roll into the valley and, it rem- and the visibility dropped to 100 metres and it stayed like that for the next three days and nights. And that was typical of January 2020. There were were five, six nights in a row where we couldn't hold a night VFR alternate across the whole of Victoria. So whilst the capability was only deployed across five fire grounds, looking at the bigger picture though, we were were still able to take valuable lessons. Sometimes, in this case, what we couldn't do. Weather minima required further optimisation because use of IFR reduced flight planning weather minima would have allowed us to improve availability. But also our tasking objectives need to be targeted and proportional to our capabilities size. One of the significant, I guess, wins of the summer was on the initial attack front. So Kestrel and 
Emergency Management Victoria completed a, a dedicated activity designed as a proof of concept. So the tactical bombing machine was assigned a, theory, a series of water sources that were previously the subject of a day reconnaissance by agency personnel. And we were asked to conduct a hazard reconnaissance by night, identify hazards and determine the super suitability of certain sites. And we were able to detect all the obstacles presented to us, as many as, or, and all of them as identified by day. And so the concept proved successful, again, providing for, um, evidence for future development. Outside of fire season, is there still a standby requirement or is this just something that's just being stood up during the, the high fire season periods? At this stage, it's just being stood up uh, during the fire season periods, yes. Okay. I don't know if it's best place to talk about here or how you want to tackle it, Rich, but there's obviously some elements of detractors out there about the, the night flying capability and, and whether it's you know worthwhile and, and you know, some of the other hassles. I think a lot of the feedback, and we talked spoke about a week ago about uh, one particular sort of source of these things, it, it looked more like frustration, the fact that on a, a typical fire ground, the aircraft get off so late just due to you know politics or the, the admin of the fire agency in terms of you know the air crews are ready to go early in the morning where they can get busy and make a difference, but they normally get delayed until the afternoon before they can actually launch. Is there anything, I don't know, what, what are the main pushback you, you kind of hear in industry, whether it's other pilots or, and, and what do you sort of have to, to say against those things? Well, there's no denying it's, um, I mean, bang for buck. It's as simple as that. So much goes into the capability in terms of the cost of aircraft, the cost of crews, and you, you can argue that that can equate to uh, additional day assets. But it's about one of the initial objectives from Emergency Management Victoria was to also highlight the use of all the available day hours, which, yeah, as you've already pointed out, is, is not conducted routinely. Um, there's always this, there tends to be an operational lag where, I mean, it's, there's just so much information to process and then to get out. And aircraft, you know, gen, on the whole, are not getting airborne till you, know, you would call it mid-morning. So there's certainly... Uh, a missed opportunity uh, at times during the morning. One thing I do say is that night firefighting or night fire bombing is not the panacea and we don't see it as the solution. It's just another tool for fire agencies that at times might, on the right night, might, provide, might make the difference. It might, it might be that time that it's able to suppress uh, a lightning strike that, again, initial attack that, uh, controls the spread of that fire into something much larger, which is the idea of aerial fire suppression. It might have a role to play in critical or high-risk areas, assets and life and community protection, which is largely what it's doing in LA County Basin. Uh, it's not out there in the forest fighting fires under initial attack. It's, it's working the urban interface and getting a foothold on the fire until the day assets, until the cavalry arrives, essentially. Uh, so that's a really important aspect that we don't see the capability as the solution. And that's really, really important. It's just another tool in that toolbox for fire agencies. You spoke about the roadmap early on. I guess it's, a, you know, it's an operational capability now. What's the next sort of R&D type thing in terms of trials? Like what's the next thing to tick off? Or is it at a, at a point now where you can sort of plateau for a little bit and just recoup some of that investment? No, but... It, it's still in its, there are still gaps if you think about what the final operational capability as it was defined. So we've come a long way 
since that initial, you know, 60-odd drop and proof of concept. I mean, Kestrel's now got six flight-through line checks with over 150 hours, night firebombing, with over 500 hover fill and drop iterations. So we're starting to move in the right direction. And the success to date of the project has achieved international recognition, particularly in terms of hover fill, because we're routinely conducting that in Australia now. But if you reflect on those capability objectives and our vision of maturity, there's still a way to travel. The continued development has to practically assess the use of initial attack. One of those key goals, so hitting early, hitting hard, requires initial attack. We need to look at that over a protracted operational test and evaluation in the real world, just as we have with the other elements of capability. And also, uh, and layered with that is improved weather minima and targeted and proportional mission objectives. These final elements, whenever they're completed over the coming seasons, will allow fire agencies and particularly NASI to make evidence-based decisions on what they want, where they want it, and how they will use it. Last one, Rich, is on the blog post for the last episode that we did, episode 65, and Kevin Knights uh, left a comment there only, only recently. and uh, He essentially says, would you be willing to share what you found from a, to a, a US counterpart, especially interested in ground crew and hover refill operations, how to set up the base, et cetera? It's probably a big topic, but is there anything that you can sort of touch on there for, for Kevin? Oh, for sure. Um, that initial summer, that first summer for us, as I mentioned, was about data collection and proof of policy. So. The blueprint for that contract, as I talked about, was a turnkey approach, so minimising our disruption operations. So what that resulted in was a really, and you talked about, was a large resource footprint, which had some logistical challenges, but it wasn't indicative of future capability. In direct support of operations, we still ran pretty lean. We had a refuel element, and that was the mainstay of our operations. And with our focus on hover fill, requiring, we required no additional support in terms of filling the tank. We did complete a ground fill uh, trial, which remains an important element, be it fatigue management or a lack of suitable hover fill resources. The procedures we used for ground fill were not unlike hot refueling. We selected a suitable landing site with multiple approach and departure paths, a water source, being a tanker or some other source, uh, and a pump, which was operated by pump operator and a nozzle attendant. High flow pump with a digital readout visible to the flight crew. So it enabled us to act, uh, accurately fill to the desired amount in, in quick time. So generally we're on, we were skids on for two minutes, which is essential when we talk about maximising our drop iterations per fuel load. So again, one of the, the key, you know, I call it an objective again for Australia is if we rely on independence and self-sufficiency. When you, we're going forward and you look how we, we're trying to integrate into current procedure agency resources and procedures, we don't want to be a burden. We want to fit in or work independently in terms of keeping a low footprint and getting the job done. Okay, look, I think that's a pretty good wrap-up of where you guys have got to in the last two years. So, yeah, unless there's anything you want to sort of just summarise to, to close things out, uh, we've covered a, a bit of ground. No, fantastic. And again, Mick, I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity.
You've just been listening to a conversation with Richard Butterworth from Kestrel Aviation. As I said at the top of the episode, and as you've probably picked up by now, Rich is the go-to guy at the moment for this night firefighting capability. And what you've just heard is as up-to-date as you can get. Thanks to Kevin Knight for your question submitted on the comments for the last episode with Rich. If you've got questions about aerial night firefighting ops that we've just been talking about, or if you are actually you know, doing this yourself internationally and have some other takeaways you want to throw in, track down this episode, it's actually a blog post on rotarywingshow.com and look out for number 89. I can pass any messages that you've got or questions and your details through to Rich, or you can get hold of him direct at kestrelaviation.com.au. If you listen to the very end of the, the immediate episode, the last episode just before this, you would have heard the quick group chat I recorded with a bunch of students. As an update, they've all now gone first solo, and me and them out in the training area solo and, and starting to get close to the confined area lessons. That's just an update for those guys. I'm trying to get recommendations or an introduction to someone who's got a heap of experience with fixed float operations to get them to come on to the show. If you've got some contact details or can can connect me with someone that you think would be good to get on to cover float ops, then drop me an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. I normally thank the awesome crew that chip in via Patreon towards the the cost of getting these episodes out to you at this point in the podcast. The way that works is every time I push out a podcast through that platform, the supporters get charged an amount depending on, on what they've, they've put in and entered. If you want to see how that works, and when you're next on the website to see the photos of the people that you've been listening to or watch some of the videos that go with the topic, if you just click the sponsorship link in the menu up the top of the page, that'll take you to all the details there. But because I've been getting a few more episodes out recently, I'm just going to give you support just a break this time, just so you don't end up with a surprise bill. And I'm just going to push this one straight through to iTunes and uh, not worry about uh, Patreon there. That support is hugely appreciated, though, because it does really, really help. Mishka got in touch and asked if I was going to publish on Spotify too. And to be honest, I just haven't had time or really uh, looked into that. So it's on my, my list of things to get to. And if you've got any tips on Spotify or anything else that would improve the episodes, then I'm all ears and you know very, very welcome to any feedback that you can send through. That's a wrap. Thanks for coming in to hang out again. If you are looking where to go next, then do check out the blog post for this episode on the website. If you want to see Rich and the other crews absolutely nail some water drops at night, then there's some FLIR videos there to to take a look at too.